Last week we were talking about embodiment as a way to ground and regulate the nervous system. And so we're just going to continue and talk about that a little bit more and then we will go on to the next thing because we were saying that there were four main ways of regulating the nervous system. So I came across this. It's from um, Bessel van der Kolk in his book, The Body Keeps the Score, that he was talking about the concept of what trauma does to a person. And he, this is what he says. He says, trauma radically changes people that in fact they no longer are themselves. It is excruciatingly difficult to put that feeling of no longer being yourself into words. Through the process of symptoms, we touched upon this the first few classes, this intense constriction that happens with souls to come down into the world. We lose contact with who we are, basically. We lose contact with the aspect of our soul that is that is truly us. We get stuck in the separateness consciousness. The soul in general experiences trauma just to be embodied, just to come into a body. When we come to have a physical lifetime, we have to accept a set of consciousness constraints that we as humans call simply the veil. The veil is an important and necessary part of the incarnation process. In order to actually be human, to have a full physical experience, we need to forget all of everything else that we are. The veil is the spiritual mechanism or perhaps even consciousness technology by which this is accomplished. It is like a great cloak that passes over your being, cutting you off experientially from your connection to all knowledge and veiling the awareness of your living connection with all things. From a state of both simultaneously individuality and blissful oneness, you collapse into individuality only. You plummet from an extremely high vibration to an extremely low vibration as you interface into the physical reality system. After I accepted the veil, I experienced my knowing be cut off and I suddenly felt separate, dark and alone. Metaphorically for me, it was like going from rich, vibrant connectedness straight into airless, cold, desolate vacuum of space. I opened myself up completely, deeply mustering my courage to open and allow the complete swallowing of my being by the vast swath of the obscuring veil. My vibration plummeted from the heights of the realms of light. My vibration collapsed lower and lower and lower and lower, all within a breathtaking, shocking instant. I went from being connected to everything to being in what felt like a dark vacuum. My knowing was gone and I suddenly felt extremely small, dense and alone. And then we have here the, the wording of Tanya is that all the contractions constitute a veiling of the divine countenance. That is, they veil and constrict the face, the essential aspect of the light and the life force that are derived from God's word, so that it should not reveal itself with an intense radiation which the lower worlds would be incapable of receiving. Therefore, too, because it is thus obscured through symptom, the light and the life force of God's word that is clothed in them appears to them as if it is something separate from God himself. It's in the context here of the idea that it's God spoke everything into existence and we see that as a separate thing. When I speak, my words actually leave me and the words I said become separate than my whole being. And because we live in a separateness consciousness, everything seems to have a separate identity unto itself. Everything seems to be like an individual object, an individual thought, an individual thing that the person says. But then the unified field of energy consciousness, which is everything is a part of this all, which is God, and so what he explains is that, yet in, in regard to Hashem, no concealment or veil hides or obscures anything from him. To him, darkness and light are the same. As it is written, even the darkness does not obscure anything from me. So this veiling is only from the created being's perspective. From God's perspective, everything is one with him. And then he goes on to explain that basically, just like a thought is one with a person inside of their head, even the thought before you even become consciously aware that it's a thought, so it doesn't have letters of thought, it's a feeling in the heart, it's really one with you. That's really how the whole world is one with God. And God is the, the source of everything and the beingness that contains everything within it. And then he goes on to say that when he was in this experience, he, he felt this. And so he was feeling a lot of fear based on the separateness consciousness that he experienced through this veiling in the sense when he came down. And he was still a baby in utero when he experienced this. And then he says that just then a great powerful I am presence of source, which is also crudely called God, came over me. So he's saying that like when we call God, God, we're shrinking him down into a word. Okay. Later on, he explains that God is just so much more than a name. Yes. And it's so much more than what we ascribe to God. 
but it's it's this it's this incredible consciousness that is the source of all being and it is the life force of everything. So basically, another thing just to bear in mind is that this guy, I'm not using him as an authority source of anything. Only things are 100% in line with what we're learning here. I'm using his his descriptions because they're just so... They're well described. They're very, very well described in language that's very relatable, and therefore they make the point so much clearer. So he was describing how once he came into this dense place and he was in utero, just then the great, powerful I am, presence of source, came over me. To this day, thinking about this presence brings me tears of joy. The presence of God filled me and for a moment expanded me back out, showing me all the galaxies and all the stars and beyond. God reminded me that I was that. I knew that I was the stars and the galaxies, indeed the entire universe and more. I was joy and freedom and power and love itself. I was a mighty churning symphony of bliss. And God said to me, this is still what you are. You can never not be this. The experience calmed me completely and I surrendered into the simple and confining darkness of the womb. What he's saying here is all written in Hasidus. Yeah. If he said something that wasn't written in Hasidus and I couldn't find a source that explained it, I wouldn't bring it into this class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things that the Alter Rebbe consistently says throughout Tanya is that a person has to focus their mind and think about things like the unity of God and the greatness of God. And these ideas and these concepts, we have to focus our mind to be able to really get a felt recognition or a dust. He talks a lot about this concept of it's not enough just to know something intellectually. You have to know with your whole being. So start by just focusing on something. For a ten, put a timer on your phone for 10 minutes. doesn't matter what it is. It could be a pen and it could be a letter in your head. It could be a sound that you're listening to. It doesn't matter. Keep focusing on it. And basically, your thoughts will come up and distract you. And then Every time you become aware that you're distracted, bring your attention back and just keep doing that for about 10 minutes. And if you do that every single day for 10 minutes, you'll find you'll be able to contain your focus on this one thing for longer and longer periods of time. And you'll start noticing the flow and the ebb of the thoughts inside of your mind. And when you start to notice and watch the flow and the ebbs of the thoughts inside of your mind, you'll start seeing certain patterns to them. You'll start having longer spaces where you have clarity and you'll start to notice the part of you that's watching and the part of you that's noticing. And in that frame of mind, you start to disconnect from your conscious thoughts and become more connected with your very presence, which you would describe as the essence of my soul, like the much bigger me that's not just the part of me that's, that's interacting with separateness consciousness. Instead, like all my thoughts that come through my mind are about what's for supper and what's happened yesterday and what does she think. It's all the story stuff that goes through our mind. So when we start to disconnect from the story and we get in touch with the I am-ness of who I am, which is the divineness of who I am, the divine being of just I am and as, as a being, then you start having access to parts of yourself that you wouldn't necessarily have had access to before so you can actually experience the oneness of Hashem. Really these things take time. One of the very powerful exercises which is connected with Das Hashem is the concept of just taking your pulse. Did we talk about this last week? Yeah you told us last week to feel our pulse. Yeah feeling your pulse and just acknowledging as you feel that rhythmic beat inside of your pulse that this is the divine energy just pulsing through me and keeping me alive or like my heartbeat or my breath the warmth of my body, just getting in contact with grounding into the physical. From when I was very young, I remember saying, like, as in, like, okay, so there's, like, a mechanism to the heart and the lungs and the knee, and, like, mm-hmm. science can explain so much, mm-hmm. but then nobody can explain the actual source of it. Like, right, as in, exactly. what's, what's driving it? What, yeah. So the heart beats and, and it, the lungs fill with oxygen, right. and, yeah. but, then, but then where's yeah. the beginning? It's like a, you're talking yeah. about a circle, but something must be powering it. Yeah. So I guess that is the, it's like my, my the life force. Yeah. yeah, it's my daughter says to me. But who was before Hashem? Like, yeah. who made Hashem? Right. <laughs> so, yeah. What's before God? <laughs> yeah. Right. And this is, this is exactly it. That in this world, everything is focused on time, space, and matter. What was before Hashem is what is matter, was is time, there is space. So we try and take everything and place it into a time, space, matter continuum. The language of logical thinking cannot describe what it means for something to be above time, space, and matter. But we can instinctively feel it with the sense of Amuna. We're going to talk about what the sense of Amuna is later as we go along. But the sense of Amuna comes from the aspect of the soul, which is Chachma. And Chachma is open and curious to, in wonder to what is. That's what Chachma is. It's like the part of the soul that's just literally open and it doesn't have any preconceived notions or stories. So from that place, we can start to sense something more. But from a logical language perspective, our, 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 our logical thinking brain is like so... that cannot wrap its head around what something means that isn't in this continuum. So 
Going back to this idea, Muna is where we access what's above way more, but Das is, das is the way we connect to what's really in the present now, how I'm experiencing God right now in my very presence in this physical world, which is through the life force energy. And Deepak Chopra writes in his book, Quantum Healing, he says exactly what you just said about, well, you can, you can see that the heart is beating and you can see that the lungs are moving and you can see that there's a tremendously complex communication system going on inside of the body. Every thought creates a neuropeptide and that neuropeptide sends messages to all the organs in the body and all those organs in the body communicate with each other and it creates chemicals and hormones and a response in the body to do certain things or not do certain things. And it's the most incredible machine. But as in a factory or in a scientific lab, you would have... Um, a scientist who's taking this chemical from the shelf, this chemical from the shelf, pouring them together, creating a certain chemical reaction, right? The chemicals don't just take themselves off the shelf and pour themselves together. Someone is doing it. So you see in the body, when you look at it through science, all of these chemicals shifting and moving inside the body. But who is and what is driving? Who's taking the chemicals off the shelf and deciding to mix them like this or like this? What is that? And he says, this is the great question mark of science. Like, what is that? And this is, this is where we point to the soul. We can see the effect of the soul, but we cannot tangibly touch what the soul is. But this idea that when that soul that is part of and experiences itself to be one with it all and experiences the joy and the bliss of spiritual ecstasy from a place that is so expanded, we can learn, we can learn it through the sources of Hasidus that explain in so much depth the unity of Hashem and what that means and the greatness of Hashem. I don't even know what you're talking about when you say that. That yeah. spiritual ecstasy, the oneness of Hashem. Like I, so I'll give you an concept. example. Yeah. Okay, so I'll give you an example of what it means by higher vibration and lower vibration. Okay. Let's say, for example, you see someone that you, that you really love, right? Someone you haven't seen for ages. And they just show up on your doorstep and they're coming to stay for a week. Yeah. How do you feel? Delighted. Okay. Now think, if you just won the lottery or yeah. something that's really important to you just happens like this. What does that feel like? It's a very high vibration. You feel expanded and light and you feel like things that used to be hard for you are easy for you now. Let's say you had to make a really hard phone call to like a teacher at school or someone you didn't like and you just pick up the phone and call them. No problem. Like it's so easy. Yeah. Getting out of bed in the morning because if you were really tired and you know that something amazing and exciting or wonderful is happening today, you just jump out of bed. No problem. Right. That's called a high vibration. And then we have low vibrations everything feels, it's when we start feeling negative thoughts about ourselves, I'm worthless, or the feeling of shame, or the fe- any fear, and, you know, if you're lying in bed, and you're thinking about, oh my gosh, I have to do this, and this, and this, and you start feeling fear of, like, any inadequacies about me, or about failing in any kind of way, the most simplest thing, like getting out of bed and going to brush your teeth, can feel almost impossible. Yeah. That's a very dense and very low vibration. So in this world, we have the spectrum of what is possible for our vibrations is very limited, but just from those examples of like the, the darkest, most constricted places that we might feel versus the most expanded places that we might feel already gives us an understanding of and, and much more, infinitely more so. Okay. okay, so imagine that the joy of experiencing intense love and intense connection and intense excitement, intense joy for anything that you experience in this world and multiply that by infinity. That would be what it would feel like to be in, I'm, I'm guessing, because obviously I've never consciously experienced this, but based on what I've learned, it would be like what it would be feel like to be in a spiritual world where you're feeling one with Hashem. We're talking about this concept of the trauma of the soul, what it means for a soul to come down into this world from experiencing this expandedness and this unity with Hashem to being constricted right down into this experience of absolute separateness consciousness with no... Can, it doesn't have any awareness of the uni- unity of all things. We were describing it to be a trauma for the soul, and everyone's experienced it. And then we were saying how Bessel van der Kolk describes trauma as radically changes people, that in fact they no longer are themselves. It is excruciatingly difficult to put their feelings of no longer being yourself into words. So I'm no longer myself. It's really the experience of the soul. The divine self comes down into this body, and it no longer has tools to express what it is. And then he goes on to say that that the self-observing body-based self-system, which speaks through senses, tones of voice, and body tension, being able to perceive visceral sensations is the very foundation of emotional awareness. This part of the brain struggles to find words for its experience, but if we feel safe and are not rushed, we can find words to communicate that experience as well. 
And basically what we've been saying is that losing touch with our bodies means losing in touch with our true selves. Actually getting in touch with who we are within our bodies is our ticket to getting in touch with the divine. It's not, it's not out there. It's in here. The more self-aware I become and the more in touch I become with my experience and my, of myself, the more I'm able to touch um, upon experiencing divine energy through das, through really integrating information on a very visceral, experiential level that is very deep in a sense of being rather than in a, an informational experience of I know something in my head, but I don't, do I really know it in my being? That's, that's like the main, the main difference. And the more I know it in my being, the more I actually free my soul. This is the world of integration. What does it mean to integrate? We come to the world with a lot of fears of the separatist consciousness. We've been talking about the definition of evil because we were talking about what the definition of a Russia is. Some contexts are very challenging. The human condition, which includes the experience of separation, is one of those potentially very challenging contexts. Fear happens when through those challenging contexts, the individual buys into perceptions that are not in alignment with the truth. Perceptions such as, I am shameful, I am powerless, I can be destroyed. And as the individual seek to cope with the unnatural state of being separate and experiencing fears, the ego arises to protect the individual and to try and reclaim the power that seems, that it seems to have lost. And when the individual makes choices from fear and ego rather than underlying truth of love, that is what we call evil. Evil is our word for ultimately fear-based intent, which arises out of the response to this non-native state of separation. Evil is what happens when a loving consciousness is acting from fear and ego because that consciousness is engaged in an experience that is not yet fully integrated. Would you not call that defenses as well? Absolutely. So we, in the past classes, described ra to mean fragmented. And what he's saying here is the word evil is what we describe to mean any part of a person that is an instinctive fear or a fear that a person's come into the world with fear of pain or fear of not being enough or fear of loneliness or any kind of fear that a person comes to the world with. When that fear has not been integrated, when that fear has not been faced and it has not been kind of diffused in the person's psyche, it becomes a huge thing. So let's say, for example, I have a fear of the dark. Now, Every time I experience in the dark, or every time someone turns off the light, what happens is, is I experience a panic inside of my body and an impulse to just go and turn the light on. And so I do that every time. So there's a fear or a fragmentation that I experience and I, and I straight away go to fix it. But let's say one time someone turns off the light and I'm feeling all that fear rise in my body and I take a deep breath and I kind of relax into that fear. And I just ground myself in my body, breathing and becoming really mindful of, wow, what's happening inside of my body? And I watch it enough to really regulate my nervous system and I start to look around the room and I start to focus on all the corners of the room and I start to realize that actually nothing dangerous is happening to me and I'm okay in this position and I don't have to go and quickly soothe myself. What I've done is I've integrated the fear. I've actually transformed the fear. I'm no longer scared because I've integrated that experience. That is what the world of integration is. Now, when a person goes through life with fears that are not integrated, they have impulsive responses to things just out of fear. Someone says something that you think is wrong and you're instantly defending this thing rather than thinking like, wow, why did I have such a strong reaction to that? What's really going on? What's happening under the surface? Every time a person has an instinctive response to something, it's due to a non-integrated fear of something. But the more self-aware a person becomes and the more that they, they fearlessly just go in and face with self-awareness, what am I actually afraid of? The more they actually face the fears, the more that they can see if there's something I really should be afraid of or not be afraid of. And really, most of the time, you realize that actually there is nothing to be afraid of because God is everywhere and God is good. What happens is, is that at that point, we break the clipper of that fear. And that is basically the transformational process of the animal soul instinctive fears. So if we're going to redefine Again, what does the English word evil mean? It really means just a fragmented internal space. A space internally where I have very powerful fears that hijack me and get in the way of me actually remaining present and connected with my experience in this moment. So, so, everything, so basically all evil is fear-based? Fear-based, absolutely fear-based. And, well, pain. But then there's, you can stay with pain in a, in a present, connected way 
or you can attempt to do everything possible to avoid pain. And that is a fear-based response because it's actually a fear of pain. Generally, I believe, and based on what I've understood, if we're talking here about an incomplete Russia, right? Someone who does have feelings of guilt and they have feelings of guilt, but it's not enough to hold them accountable. They do know what they've done is wrong, but they don't, they don't have enough access to their prefrontal cortex or a self-awareness to understand why they're doing what they're doing or enough will to kind of look at what they're doing and really question it honestly. They just say, oh, I feel bad, but then they defend themselves and say, well, I had to do that because of X, Y, and Z, or I feel guilty, and they justify themselves. You would call that a person in a state of rush, a state of fragmentation. So if, if fear is like the primal negative or whatever you want to... It's, it's a, not negative. Fear is the separateness what, consciousness, if that's and the, love is the unified consciousness. Right, so if that's the primal one, where does shame fit in? Fear of not being enough. Fear of worthlessness and, and, and disconnection. Shame is I'm just, I'm a terrible human being, like I need to become invisible and, mm. and, and insignificant and small. Because I'm really, really bad. My frequency is way low down. I'm experiencing myself to be absolutely dark and disconnected and rather than experiencing myself to be one with this expanded field of so energy. So breathing into that shame. Yeah, so feeling the shame. Integrate, integration yes, yeah. and that will make you feel more connected. Yeah, so, so noticing where do you feel the shame in your body. Let's say for example it might be in your lower gut and just imagining yourself just watching it and, and being like, wow, what is this? This is a really intense experience and just breathing into it with open curiosity and compassion. Hmm. Taking out any judgment and hearing the voices like, oh, there's a voice that's saying you're an idiot or you're this, you're wow, it's really strong, it's really important to that part of me to really keep me in that very constricted state, I wonder why. And you start to just open up that curious state of just like, wow, there's a part of me that's really fragmented and really wants me to experience this, and what happens if I just meet it and I become friends with it? And that process of just sitting with it long enough, it just removes the fear of shame. These conversations with the fragmented parts of ourselves, what we call the animal soul consciousness, which we're going to learn more about soon. We haven't really described it yet, but it's a fragmented, instinctive, fear-based part of ourselves. And then we have the divine part of ourselves that knows it's part of this oneness. But most of the time, we don't have any access to the divine part of ourselves unless we consciously choose to feed it, which we're going to learn how as we go through Tanya. But the more that we are going to start doing this spiritual work, the more we, we first have to have grounded space within our bodies where we feel safe to go into our bodies and explore what we're experiencing without fear. And the more safety we feel inside of our bodies and the more we feel that we can explore without fear, the more fearless we become in our curiosity and in our capacity to integrate what's going on inside of our animal souls. So there's a two-phrase process in transformation. One is creating a real strong stability, which is the grounding within the body. And then it's the destabilization of all the fragmented parts of ourselves and with a curious openness, but with fearlessness, going and confronting all of our limiting beliefs about ourselves and about the world and destabilizing those. Like, why do I think that I'm worthless? What's, what made me think that? And what makes me think it's true? And throwing it into a state of, oh, I don't know. <laughs> but in order to have the guts to do that, I have to have the safety of the grounding in my body. Or so, therapist. Well, the th- hopefully the therapist will give me tools to ground in my body at the beginning of therapy in order to then be able to do the processing work. Because therapy has two stages. It has the stage of stabilization and then the stage of destabilization. If you start to process trauma with people without giving them grounding techniques, so then they're going to go away from the therapy session feeling like all shaken up and not able to to calm themselves down and the feeling of fears come up and then those feelings of fears make them feel um, even more helpless and even more, what's going on with me, I can't cope with this, I don't know what to do. And it opens up windows of feeling even worse. But if the first few therapy sessions are all based on learning grounding techniques until a person has them down pat, then we go into process little bits of things at a time and then go into grounding. So that's a bit like if you know how to turn off the tap, then it's safe to turn on the tap. So this process of... We're going to turn on, we're going to face the trauma, we're going to face the fears, we're going to experience all, but then we know how to turn it all off again so you feel at peace in your body again and you can cope with life. So you're not left in a fragmented state in between sessions. So that's the power of trauma therapy. That's very different than regular standard talking therapy. Let's just go in and talk about it, but then you leave the person like open and pleading everywhere between sessions. Isn't the relationship 
part of the grounding. It is, yes. But if a person is reliant upon the relationship only and they don't have an internal relationship, and what part of the grounding techniques are experiencing an internal parent, or for example, take the therapist who I experience as, as a grounding presence, and I imagine myself opening up a, a window in my body and putting them in, or sitting on my shoulder, that's already an internalized therapist that I can go home with and I can have conversations with them in my mind and that's already a, a regulation technique. Yeah. But if I'm constantly relying on the therapist as an external person that every time I feel panicked I feel like I have to phone the therapist. The therapist isn't going to be available between sessions. It leaves me feeling abandoned. It means, means, leaves me feeling angry at the therapist. You weren't there for me when I needed you. And it has complications depending on that. But if I understand that the therapist is just mirroring a voice or something that I can create as an internal person or internal place within myself, then it becomes much safer. So I attach to myself rather than to the therapist. We spoke about how really experiencing ourselves in our bodies and breathing slower and deeper, very grounding. Then there's, then there's the different physical exercises that a person can do that are also very grounding. I'm not going to go into them in a lot of detail here. So for example, EMDR is looking your eyes from side to side. You do that with a therapist whilst you're processing things. That regulates the nervous system whilst you're facing trauma or looking at things close and then looking at things further away. A bit like an internal pacemaker that it, it calms the heart down. There are also different exercises like Qigong and yoga, standing on your head, going in ice cold water, hugging someone. All of these things are just physical things on the outside that thought, regulate the nervous system. Like Thoughts is the next whole topic that I'm going to talk about in okay. a minute okay changing the thoughts is massive but I'm just finishing the physical things and we'll go into the thoughts so okay. also in Tanya it speaks about how Rava used to eat fat meat and drink spice, spiced wine before he learned in order to expand his mind which would mean an expanded space of consciousness a space of joy or regulated nervous systems or it talks about he was to make jokes before he started learning in order to also bring a person to a state of expanded joy and consciousness, a regulated nervous system. And there's so many things, beauty, buying something nice. I mean, there's so many different things that we can do in a present mindfulness experience or space that actually enables a person to feel regulated and grounded in their body. So everyone really needs to just explore what works for them. And different techniques, you can learn with different professionals in different ways, but I'm, not, I, I'm just touching on them as an idea because a lot of times when people are experiencing trauma, it's very helpful for them also to take a yoga class or also finding a smell that's grounding for you. Like if you like the smell of lavender or peppermint and take a little essential oils bottle with you and smell it when you feel triggered. Different things like that called body resources that give information to the senses that actually I'm in a safe, soothing environment. And the next huge chunk is the thought process. Now we come into the world with a fragmented thought process of separation and fear, fear-based responses to things. And basically, the more I start to shift my perspective on things, the easier it becomes for me to regulate my nervous system. And this is really something that a lot of Tanya addresses, false thought processes, not only false processes about the world, but also about God, and specifically the pettiness that we ascribe to God. Now, this is something that I come across all the time. I didn't daven today, that's why this bad thing happened. I didn't give Sadaka to that guy, that's why I got a parking ticket. There's this, this thought process of real experiencing God as tit for tat, which is actually a very fear-based thought process. And it's very much humanizing God and putting him into a pettiness position. Yeah. You didn't do this for me, so I'm going to punish you for it. And the truth is, is that, yes, whatever, everything that happens in the world is for a reason. But when we stay stuck in the fear-based consciousness and we stay stuck in the seeing God as pettiness, we've lost the opportunity of the moment. We've really lost it. We have to start by really reassessing in our minds who is God and taking God beyond the pettiness of a human being to something that is so much greater and really start to internalize and integrate actually the greatness of God that God isn't just a human being. Just take a moment to think about the life force within your body. So your heartbeat and your energy and all of your thoughts and all of your emotions and the depth of who you are as a human being and the complexity of who you are as a human being. And now just times that by however many people are in the room, okay? And just think about how much greater that is than your own experience. And then think about how many people are in this house. And then just think about how many people are on the street. And then just think about how many people are in this few blocks. 
And you just can expand and expand your mind to start thinking about and how much does that mean in this world? And on top of that, every blade of grass that's growing, every tree, every flower, every drop of water in the ocean, every ant, every spider, every single animal that exists in the entire world, the life force energy that's keeping it in existence, move beyond the physical universe to the sun, the moon, the galaxies, the stars. And this is just the physical universe and how many galaxies exist and just times that life force energy. And God is all of that and more. That is what God is. He is, he is every single thing. He is all life force energy, the source of everything, but also the continued bringing into existence of everything all of the time. And it's one unified field of energy and it's all connected and it's all one and it's constant. It's just this pulsing energy that is going through everything that exists. It is way beyond pettiness. So there's so much that I think we took from Holy Svarim and we interpreted it through the eyes of fragmentation and we interpreted it through the eyes of fear. And then we attached meaning to it that wasn't meant to be there. For example, this idea of if you think something negative, the negative thing will happen. If someone hears something along those lines, what happens is from a fear-based, disconnected, separateness consciousness is I am gripped with panic about every single single thought I'm going to think. And it's extremely terrifying. And I'm really scared about someone dying if I think of them dying. So then what happens in the OCD mind is that without wanting to, those thoughts will constantly pop into my mind and I'll constantly try to push them away. And I live in this constant state of stress about this. I don't want to think about this thought, but it comes into my head and what am I going to do? And, and my frequency becomes extremely constricted and I'm not even thinking about God. This has nothing to do with God. This is my fear of life and death. It is true. Your thoughts, your thoughts become words and words become So, So really a person has to start by first regulating their nervous system and putting it into a context. Okay. Putting people, it into most a people context. are putting it into context. There are those few people with OCD, for example, that might come... Most people are, are seeing it with a fear-based response. And some people have... I gave you an extreme example of someone OCD who would have extreme fear that gets mm. in the way of them living. Most people don't want to think about the fear, so they just don't think about it and they block it. That's how they deal with it. Mm. So I'm not going to think about it, that thought because it's just too overwhelming. But then yet they, they've left out a whole chunk of something that could be an opportunity for growth. And if I want to start understanding, well, how do my thoughts affect the world around me and what can I do about them and how can I grow spiritually? I have to be willing to first face what's going on inside of me and I can't do that if, I don't, if I'm afraid of my thoughts. How can I be honest about what I'm thinking if I'm afraid of my thoughts, <laughs> right? Because I'm afraid I'm going to think of something negatively. Now, there's a lot of places in the Rambam that he explains, for example, that if a person is sick, the first thing that you have to pay attention to is the mindset of the person because the mindset of a person has a very big impact on the person's health. I've seen the Friedrich Rebbe wrote in the Kuti Dibram, he said that positive thought has much stronger, quicker effect on the world than a negative thought. I've seen also where the Rambam describes this about the negative thought affecting the person's body. The, the true neutralizer for negative thoughts is compassion. If, if, for example, I think this terrible thing is going to happen, if I look at that thought and say, well, there's a part of me that believes this terrible thing's going to happen, and I release and forgive it for thinking that way, it's coming from the animal soul, instinctive survival mechanism. It thinks that if it keeps thinking that thing, it's going to be able to prevent it from happening. Because like, if I think this terrible thing is going to happen and I keep my focus on it, I might be able to find a way to stop it. So, wow, it's really working so hard to keep me safe and to have compassion on it. And the more compassion I have for the thought, I actually cancel out the negative thought. If I start thinking the thought and I become the thought and it's everything, then it completely overwhelms me. But if I see it for what it is, in a context of what it is, there's a thought that's going through my head that says this. Gosh, that's really interesting. I wonder what's going on. I've actually diffused that thought. And another example of this is, let's say we're, we're told not to think negatively about other people. Let's say you have a thought that comes in your head of like, gosh, my neighbor's such an idiot. Yeah? Now, if we just think, yeah, she's such an idiot, and I go into that spiral of she did this and she did that and she's also annoying... Yes, that's a thought that we're told, stay away from that, that it's not an integrity with who you are. Mm. But if I notice it and I'm like, wow, there's a part of me that's really defensive in front of my neighbor, part of me that really doesn't like her, I wonder why. Something's going on. It's like it's, it's, it's touching one of my triggers. Maybe there's an opportunity for me to grow and understand myself deeper. Maybe there's a certain part of myself that's feeling threatened by her. I wonder what's going on. And I use it as an opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. I've transformed that whole experience. I've turned darkness into light. That's exactly what I'm supposed to be doing with my inner world. And she actually was just a catalyst, an opportunity for me to grow. So there's nothing to be afraid of. And everything in the world is a catalyst, an opportunity for us to grow. Every thought that comes into our mind, the Baal Shem Tov says, 
Everything a person thinks, everything a person feels, it's all information about their relationship with Hashem. It's all an opportunity for growth. And everything is, like we spoke about in the, one of the early classes I, I read to you, the Baal Shem Tov's definition of Ashkach Pratis, divine providence, how absolutely everything is exactly as it's meant to be. And we said that it's to the point where a person cannot even fathom that every single interaction we have in our life is an opportunity for us to grow and an opportunity for us to connect to deeper parts of ourselves and to God and to the world in ways that we never thought were even imaginable. If we're willing to go in and look and confront, but if I'm afraid of my own experience and my own feelings because I don't know how to ground them and I don't know what to do with them when they get intense, I'm not going to be able to do any of that spiritual work. So... Basically, the, the, as I said, like the Baal Shem Tov goes on and describes that as actually the case even with all emotions and all... Even mundane experiences. Every single experience, especially the mundane experiences. Change in consciousness precedes a change in the world. Every time yeah. any one of us faces and integrates a fear, we're making real progress. Every time any one of us chooses to selflessly support the person near us, even when it's difficult, we are making real progress. Mm -hmm. Every time any one of us finds joy and freedom, even when the constraints of physical life are extreme, we are making real progress. Every time in the quiet of your own heart that you choose to love over fear, that you choose freedom rather than the restrictive conditioning of your past, we're making real progress. Many times real progress is made even when a physical finger has not yet been lifted. I mean, this is not, he just says it well, but we learn, well. we learn in Hasidus this concept that every person is an island cotton. Every person is a small world. And when we make a small shift in our inner consciousness, we make a massive, massive shift in the world around us. A lot of times people hear that and they're like, oh my gosh, there's so much pressure. He says, you must take personal responsibility for our place in the world. In fact, we must take personal responsibility for the whole world. Simultaneously, we do not need to be overwhelmed by the scope of the change required. We simply need to act where we are. And as the saying goes, you must be the change that you wish to see in the world. But this does not mean that you need to lose your peace. So when we shift something in our internal world and we integrate a fear, we have a massive rippling effect on the entire world around us. There's a Rabbi Nachman story of, uh, it's called the melancholy saint, the depressed tzaddik. That's the title of the story. But he describes that there was a man who was very, very depressed based on his fears of, of the world, of himself. Everything that he did wasn't good enough. He had like a perfectionism thing. Anyway, he touched upon a thought. I can't remember the exact thought, but it was a thought that didn't depend on him. Something about him that wasn't completely a failure. And it wasn't to do with him, so he couldn't mess it up. Okay, And because he focused on this idea, he says he flew high up into the spiritual world, which basically just means he went up in frequency. He went from feeling very, very dense and low and depressed to feeling expanded and joyful. And then he, he says everything waxes and wanes in the physical world, so you feel expanded one minute and you start feeling constructed. He came all the way back down and he felt himself standing right back in the same position as he was before. And he could not understand how he was in exactly the same position when he felt like he traveled miles and miles. And, and then he realized that, in fact, he had actually traveled a hair's breadth that cannot actually be measured. But then Rabbi Nachman steps out of the story and he explains that every single time a person travels one head's breadth in this world, it causes ramifications in the higher worlds that are beyond our understanding. And he gives the example that if you have the center of a circle and then you have something on an external part of the circle in the circumference, like the sun moves thousands of miles in the sky before you just see an inch in the shadow move in this ground. So when something is in the center, it only has to shift a tiny bit to have a massive impact on higher places, higher frequencies. So one tiny shift a person makes in this world, in their thought, in their exp internal experience, in their internal world, the curiosity to just face a fear and sit with it has massive impacts and reverberations on the spiritual world. There's a proportionate fear and then there's disproportionate fear. Okay. For example, the fear of a death. Truthfully, we know that when somebody dies, their time is up. Their soul reunites with the source of all things. What is it that we're so afraid of? The fear of feeling grief, fear of losing something. So most people don't want to face those fears unless they actually come across death in their life and then they have, have to, to face, face those fears. fears. Yes. There's five stages to grief. You start off with the denial phase where I just don't want to know. I don't want to face the reality of what's happening. And then I go through the bargaining of maybe I could have, if I should have, if I would have, then this wouldn't have happened. In the mind, it's a process in the mind of like, oh, if I would have been there to catch her, she wouldn't have fallen. If I would have, 
done this in this treatment, maybe she wouldn't have died of cancer. And it can drive a person mad, like all the would-haves and should-haves that I would have done, and then I would have saved the situation, but actually the person's already dead. How is this helpful, exactly? Right, and then there's the anger of realizing I actually couldn't have done anything, and this actually happened, and this anger of why did this have to happen? This isn't fair. And those three stages are all just covering over the bottom line, which is just facing the sadness of the loss, which is the the grief aspect, which is I just need to cry and recognizing in myself, what am I experiencing actually? The deeper experience is that of sadness, that I miss this person, I love this person, I wanted connection with this person, I wanted more time with this person and I don't have it and it's really sad. Yeah, but it's really sad and it shouldn't be happening. But then God is behind it, obviously, as we said, there's a shkocha. Yeah. And why is this happening? Why is this happening, we can ask, but we will never have an answer. We can ask, we're allowed to ask that question, but why is this happening is not something we'll have an answer to, because this is the age-old question, why do bad things happen to good people? Really, God doesn't want us to know why these painful things happen, because then when something painful happens to another human being, instead of us having empathy for them, we'll just go into our logic-based place of, oh, I know why it happened, it's all for the best, and everything's good, and Hashem is good, so you know, everything's fine. But really God wants us to rail against the pain and to be there for people when they're in pain and to sit with them. The reality is, is that we are extremely vulnerable and we live in a world of uncertainty and we live in a world of separateness consciousness and fears. And part of embracing life is to be able to walk through life without fear, which means to be able to obviously do everything we can to protect, but as soon as we try and play God, Mm-hmm. It's impossible for us to control everything. I know parents who try everything they can to control their kids' behavior and their kids have somehow sneaked out of the house and done stuff behind their parents' backs. If you think that, like, that's just in a parent-child relationship, we cannot control anything in life. You can't control if a person just gets sick one day. You can't control whether you get a car accident. All these things are loss on some level. But- the loss of innocence... The loss of a dream, yeah. the Even loss of how divorce is a loss. Yes, a loss. behind okay. every single fear, there's an equal and opposite love. So if you are deathly afraid of losing somebody, it's because you love them so deeply. And if you recognize where is the fear in my body, let's say it's in your chest, mm-hmm. and you use your internal spatial awareness and sense to go behind the fear, notice, well, you can travel through the fear, notice how big the fear is, that's stage number one, and then notice what's behind it. Most people experience the very expansive space of love. Now, you can choose to hang out in the love, or you can choose to hang out in the fear. And if you hang out in the fear, your behavior towards the person is going to be fear-based behavior, controlling behavior, don't go ahead, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And if you hang out in the love, you'll be present and experience the joy of being connected with this person right here, right now, and also embrace the vulnerability of life. Yeah. And the fact that I, I, I can't control when you're going to live and when you're going to die, but I can, I can be fully connected and present with you right now. Whereas when I'm in, with, in fear, I'm not even going to live with you. That's so mm. true. I'm not experiencing life with you. Yeah. And that's why I'm afraid to lose you. But now I have you here. And a lot of the pain when someone actually physically loses somebody is the guilt that I wasn't fully present and connected with the person when they were alive and it was a lost opportunity. The, the more stress a person experiences is the bigger gap between where I think I should be and where I truly am. Mm-hmm. If I think I should be at this place, let's say I should be at school at pickup, and I'm in traffic, if I'm five minutes away, I'll experience a little bit of stress. If I'm half an hour away, I'll experience a ton of stress. Now, in our life, we have these dreams and expectations and these ideas of where we think we should be. And the bigger the gap between where we think we should be and where we are is the bigger indicator of how much stress and dysregulation a person will experience. And so really integrating this information that you actually are exactly where you're meant to be. You're exactly, exactly where you're meant to be at exactly the right time and exactly the right place to do the work that you need to do. Now, you think you came to the world to be on time every day for carpool. But in fact, you came to the world to face the fear of being late and the fear of abandoning and getting in trouble by authority figures, right? So then you have to mourn the loss of, I had this ideal of being the person who was always on time. And that's who I expect that I should be. Now, there's a point where I have to actually mourn the loss and grieve this dream. I'm actually the person who's late a lot of the time. And people might not think of me or the way I want them to think of me or whatever their good judgments they're going to have. But I have to mourn the loss of a certain facade or a certain way I wanted to show up in the world. Or I have to consciously choose to prioritize being on time by leaving extra early to be there on time and to change that behavior in myself. And I have to make a choice between the two. So everything in life is a process of confronting the belief to confront the experience 
and I then have to move into a space of making a choice about it, mourning the loss of the things I'm going to leave behind and moving into becoming really present with the stuff that's valuable to me and important to me. And this internal process of shifting the thought process and becoming really aligned with the truth of reality, which is I am on a divine mission to confront the fragmented parts of myself, the promise that the, the soul makes before it comes into the world, be a tzaddik, be an integrated person, do not be a fragmented person. And even if you are not able to become an integrated person, at least don't be a fragmented person, at least try and work towards integration. You may not fully be able to integrate, you may still be triggered throughout your life, which is what the Benini is, but he still becomes fully aware of what's going on inside of him. He has absolute re- ability to regulate his nervous system. He is the one who has choice. He has, he's, it says he's judged by both sides, which means he, has, he hears both voices in his head. He hears all the voices. He knows what's going on. He's completely regulated and aware. And he chooses right action consistently. But he has not completely integrated his fragmented voices or his triggers. And he's still triggered. That's most of us. We're not going to remove all our triggers. The tzaddik is one who has absolutely integrated everything, so he doesn't even get triggered. And the Rosh is someone who gets triggered and lives in the chaos and the fragmentation of the triggers and the guilt and the fears. So really, this is what we come into the world with. I'm coming into a fragmented world in a world that is not integrated into the world with trauma. I'm losing contact with myself. I'm moving into a body. And how do I, how am I going to move through this lifetime? Am I going to face my fears? Am I going to become self-aware? Am I going to become embodied? How do I do that? I have to truly, truly know that God is holding me. I'm a part of something so much greater than myself. I am a part of the unified field of energy, which is Hashem. And I need to understand about Hashem's unity. I need to understand about Hashem's greatness. I need to understand exactly why I came to the world and what I'm here to do. I need to understand that everything is Hashem Chaprotis and I'm being guided in my life every single second. I need to understand how loved and valued and important I am in God's eyes and how he sees everything and knows everything about me more than I know myself. I need to know how to ground myself in my body. We say Adon Alam every single day. And the last posuk is for Imruchi, Gaviyasi, Hashemli, Falayra. The Imruchi with my soul, Ruchi, for Gaviyasi in my body, Hashemli, Hashem is with me, Falayra, and I will not fear. This is such a powerful um, image. When my soul is in my body, I'm embodied. Like I'm not up in my mind far away. I, when I experience Hashem being with me, I don't have fear. I place my life in your hands, Hashem. I know you're taking me through this life. So I have no, I don't have to fear facing my fears. The fear of fear itself is one of the biggest fears we have because we don't like the experience of fear in our bodies. This feeling of dysregulation and like all over the place, it feels very dangerous to us. But if I know that actually it's just a physical experience in my body that has a beginning, a middle and an end, and I know how to ground myself and take myself out of that experience, then I, I lose the fear of feeling fear in the first place. And then I have the capacity to really start on a spiritual journey of going into my body and starting to integrate myself. So next week, we'll go right back into the text of Titania because we've pretty much finished talking about regulating the nervous system. I think the last piece we were talking about is that we have to confront those fears and change the way that we think. To begin with, to start cultivating a curious thought process and a compassionate thought process because with curiosity and compassion, you can face any fear. And to start learning new truths about the world. For example, the one about Shkachapratis or the example about God's greatness or unity. These kind of things are really helpful for integrating the nervous system. Because I have what to fall back on. If I really think that if I mess up on something, then that means I'm a really terrible person. If I really believe that, it can be very devastating. Even if I learn how to regulate my nervous system and I can breathe and I can ground myself, that thought will just keep taking me into dysregulation. If I'm really grounded and all of a sudden I think of a fear, I can pop right back out into dysregulation. So learning a new way of thinking is super important for regulating the nervous system. But if I haven't yet done that, I haven't yet gone through the whole Tanya and I haven't yet integrated the information, just the awareness that there's different parts of me. We're going to learn about the parts more as we move through. When we actually start looking at the structure of the soul, we're going to start learning about the parts and how to speak to the different parts inside of a person because we have many different voices in our head. We call them the 10 different spheres and they each literally pull us in different directions. But the first regulating thought process is curiosity, openness, and compassion. Mm. I wonder why I'm thinking this way. And separating yourself from a part of me is terrified right now. Wow, what's going on? And just starting there and observing, that is the most regulating thing. Curious, openness, and compassion. I'm just not judging. I just have a kind regard towards. I know it must have a good intention. I'm not feeling angry or, or... 
you know, frustrated or judgmental of. I'm just in a kind, open space of, wow, what is this? And that is the first thought process. And if I only have that and I don't have anything else, I can still do a lot of inner work. I'm going to end up with a lot of questions and not have answers to them. But that's, that's still a lot. That's still a lot. And I'm just wondering if that also could stop us from doing things that need to be done. Because sometimes we have judgments mm -hmm. and you need those judgments. For example, mm -hmm. you see someone running behind you and you get scared and you yeah. might be a murderer. Right. So by just being open, curious and yeah. compassion, mm -hmm. you might not act in a way where, that you should. Mm -hmm. So the question is, if you are living in a space of openness, curiosity and compassion, maybe the healthy fear that you sometimes need in order to save your life on some level might not kick in. Now, our survival instincts will protect us. For example, if you hear a loud noise, you're going to jump, regardless of what you want to do. Someone running up behind you in the dark in the night, you are going to feel weary because that's an instinctive body experience. But there's a lot of things in life that we feel we have to kick ourselves to do, otherwise we won't do them. For example, if I don't guilt trip myself into doing this mitzvah, why would I want to do it? Or if I don't tell myself this negative consequence is going to happen, then why would I do it? Moving away from fear-based connection with Hashem and fear-based interaction with the world into desire-based interaction with the world. That I'm going to actually do it because I want to do it, because I see the value in doing it, not because if I don't do it, something terrible is going to happen. So if I don't hand in my work, my deadline, then basically I'm going to fail my course. If that's my motivation, it's fear-based, which is okay, and sometimes it works. But sometimes we have to start asking ourselves the question, why did I do the course in the first place? What did I actually want to, to accomplish the course and focus on what I actually want? And then ask myself the question, well, what actually am I afraid of? Maybe I'm afraid of failing. Maybe I'm afraid of not getting the mark I want. Maybe I'm afraid of being told to do it again or whatever it is. And to face that fear. What, what is going to happen if I have to rewrite my essay again? What am I afraid that that means about me? And what am I afraid that that means about my, my progress in this course and my ability to be able to pass the course? And it's an opportunity for me to actually face some of my fears that I've maybe been avoiding and to move into actually, I want this. I want to pass this course because I want to do this. And to be motivated by desire versus just motivated by a fear-based response. And there's so many things in our life that, that kind of... Or even we come can, to the conclusion that actually I'm doing it for the wrong reason. Maybe I'm just doing it from fear and actually, and maybe I'm doing it because I'm afraid of what people will think of me if I fail. And maybe I don't even want to do it. And then maybe I need to f face my fear of disappointing the people in my life and actually pursue what I want. Because ultimately God communicates to us. I saw this as a letter. The Rebbe said, a woman asked the Rebbe, how do I know what Hashem wants from me? And the Rebbe said, Hashem commun communicates directly to you on Hashem. And from that you have good desires that come to you, like desires for what you want. And if you follow your deepest heart's desires, I'm not talking about superficial desires or addictions that are just self-soothing and like avoidant really? techniques. Sugar. I'm talking about deep inner core desires. I really want to do this. Really that is usually a direction that your soul is pulling you that direction because it's connected to your purpose in the world. Everyone has their own inner, inner journey. But if I have the, the guts to go inside and get curious and face it. And if I, if I do that, my DAS comes online, my prefrontal cortex, my expanded consciousness. I have the capacity to really be honest with myself. And usually I get clarity through that process. Mm -hmm. If I ask myself, so why do I want to do this thing? Oh, because I want to accomplish this. But why do I want to accomplish this? Because so and so. But why do I want that? But why do I want that? But what am I afraid will happen if I don't do that? Mm -hmm. And just through constant questioning and getting curious with yourself, you really get to a lot of clarity. But if you're just afraid of at some point what you hear, you get stuck. Yeah.